Hello and welcome to the First Baptist Church of LaGrange. What an honor it is to have you listening to our church broadcast today. We hope that as you listen along, following in your Bible, that you experience the grace and presence of Christ just as strongly as we do every Sunday in our worship service. May God truly bless you as you listen. Hey church, uh, real quickly, man. Um, uh, Jeremy, I don't like to ever throw you on the spot. I don't want to put your health out on the street without permission, but I know you and have a relationship with you. Uh, but man, Jeremy started not feeling well earlier in practice this morning, and he's going to leave us now because he is really feeling uh, pretty bad. I just wonder, could we pray for him? Would that be okay, church? Would y'all just join me? And let's just go before the Lord and ask the Lord to minister to my brother's body. Lord God, we are grateful that you are a God that heals, that you know our bodies. God, you know them inside and out, and you know what's going on in Jeremy's body. And so right now, in the name of the Father, the name of the Son, the name of the Holy Spirit, I ask you to heal him. I ask you, Lord, to touch his body and remove any and all things that may be forming against his body. Just please, Lord, deliver him right now. I trust you with him. Lord, I know that he has tremendous responsibilities, and I just ask you to make him well, and Lord, give him rest, and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, brother, for letting me pray for you, man. Good, y'all still excited? Everybody all right? All right, just checking, man. You know how we do. You know what, Travis, man, it's good to see you, buddy. I saw you coming in, and uh, man, just love you, man. Just, Dawn, hopefully you're feeling okay. Okay, all right, well, <laughs> that says everything. Uh, and it's been a sickness going around, right? Y'all know that? A couple of y'all have been down and out with that, and my heart just, man, my heart goes out to you. Uh, anybody in the room know Peanuts? Y'all remember that commercial? Uh, commercial, That cartoon, uh, Peanuts? Just by show of hands, just need to know who I'm speaking to in the audience. That's most, yeah, Snoopy, yeah, that'd be better to say. Okay, it's to the majority of you. So y'all know Lucy and Linus were together one day, and... Uh, they were sitting in front of the television set when Lucy says to Linus, she says, go get me a glass of water. Linus looked surprised and he said, why should I do anything for you? You've never done anything for me. So Lucy turns back to Linus and she says, well, I'll tell you what, on your 75th birthday, I'll bake you a cake. So Linus gets up and he goes to the kitchen and on his way there, he says these words. He says, you know... Life is more hopeful when you have something to look forward to. I mean, I think there's some truth there, don't you? I think he's on to something. I think it really does kind of matter that if I'm going to have hope, there's got to be something that I'm hoping for. There's something that I'm, I'm looking forward to. Maybe you're here this morning, and, and I am not trying to put your business on the street, so if, if you think by these examples I've heard something, that's not true. I've been in the bed in the emergency room this week, so trust me. I just knew what was happening there, so that's where I got this. But maybe, maybe you just need some hope in your relationship with somebody. Maybe it's just gotten so bad and, and the stress is so real that you just don't really have anything to look forward to. Matter of fact, you don't even look forward to going home to be with this person anymore. Maybe um, some of you uh, that are seniors, maybe you have gotten just discouraged in the college application process and you need something, uh, some hope. Maybe you're like me and you've lost 
hope and don't have anything to look forward to about your physical health. Maybe you got a, a, a doctor tell you, hey, listen, this is just the way this is going to be, and you've lost. Hope you have nothing to look for. You don't have a, a time where you're going to be better than when you are today. Maybe you're just in a dead-end job, and there's just no hope there, and you have no way to get out of it. It's the only thing that you know to do. It's the only option that you have going for you. And so you're just like, man, there's just nothing to look forward to. There's, there's nothing better coming. Maybe you're struggling with your kids, and you're like, man, I really don't have anything to look forward to, but just them turning out the way that they just keep turning out. You're just in that discouraged mode of life. I could go on, but, but if that's you this morning, I just want you to know I think the Lord has a word for you because he has a, he's had a word for me this week. And I think it's going to be interesting because this is the way the Lord does it. We're going to look this morning at having hope by looking at history. So rather than having something to look forward to, we're going to look backwards to something that was looking forward to something, if that makes sense. <laughs> we're going to look at the... the the hope of heavenly history. You know this. We're in the book of Daniel, and the king has dreamed a dream, and he's asked for all of his wise men to come tell him the dream and its interpretation, and we've covered that, not last week, but the week before Justin uh, preached last week. And so we know that Daniel has been endued with these spiritual gifts from the Lord, and so he's come to the king, and he said, hey, king, I can help you. I'm your man. Uh, it's not from me, but, but the Lord has showed me. And he gives him the dream and the interpretation. And the people of God in the text there in the book of Daniel may have felt a whole lot like you feel this morning. I think when Daniel gets this dream, and you, you've got to kind of understand it in the context, they were in Babylonian captivity, and they were saying, man, is this all we've got to look forward to? As a matter of fact, Daniel had even said, this is going to be the way it is for 70 years. I mean, can you imagine that? All you've got to look forward to for the next 70 years is captivity. Where's the, where's the hope in that? Or God, are you putting us on the shelf forever? In other words, because of their sin, God, are you done using us? Is this the end for us? <coughs> Excuse me. Well, I think that God steps in and he says, listen, I was up here with a man, I won't embarrass him by telling you who it was, but he was telling me, man, the Lord gave him a promise, and he's just hung on to that. And I think that's exactly what Daniel's getting here from the Lord. And he gives this promise, this prophecy to the, to the people to give them something to look forward to. He gives his word, and his word is what gives us hope. God speaks some things and reveals some things that gives us hope. And I've made up this acronym, and it's free. We don't have to take up another offering for this. It's just just really good. I've had a lot of time on my hands to lay and think, but, but here's the deal, man. If you spell hope out, H-O-P-E, I think we could do this. We could say hope is really heaven's own promises explained. I think that's really a way to get at hope. It's heaven's own promises explained. Let me tell you in the context of that, what I mean by that is, is really the hope came through a prophecy. And a prophecy is really God's promise. And the prophecy is not meant to discourage the people of God. It's actually meant to encourage the people of God. So we're going to stand here in just a moment. I want you to turn to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to pick up in verse 31, and we're going to read through the rest of the chapter here. We're going to kind of dig in today and see how the Lord wants to give us some hope. And we're going to have to do this 
There's a lot of history here, and I'm going to try to make this as applicable as I possibly can for our lives today. But if you have a copy of God's Word, turn it to Daniel chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 31. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there's some Bibles under the seats kind of around you. And then also, it'll be up here on the screen. But again, our preference here is, and I just want to encourage you about this, church. It's okay uh, to bring a hard copy of God's book with you. It's just telling you that you're in a different place. You're not in that space where you have all the phones and digital stuff. We kind of want to exit that world for a little bit. But if you have that, hey, praise God, because it's got a backlight on it. It helps you see. There's no shame in that whatsoever. But you're going to tell your brain, I'm doing something different when I'm coming to church. It's just a way we can be different. But I wonder if you'd stand to your feet as I just kind of read the text here. Again, if you're new with us, this isn't the religious part of our sermon uh, where we kind of stand because it's what we do. We're standing because God is speaking, and we want to listen to what God says. We're going to honor God by the, the hearing of his word. So we're picking it up here. Daniel says, you, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a simple, a single great statue. And that statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was what, church? It was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, and its breasts and arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like shaft from the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not even a trace of them was found. But... The stone that was struck, the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. And now we'll tell its interpretation before you, the king. You, O king, are the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the strength, and the glory. And wherever the sons of men dwell, or the beasts of the field, or the birds of the sky, he has given them into your hand and caused you to rule over them all. You are the head of gold. After you, there will rise another kingdom inferior to you, then another third kingdom of bronze, which will rule over all the earth. Then there will be a fourth kingdom as strong as iron, inasmuch as iron crushes and scatters all things, shatters all things, so like iron that breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these in pieces. In that you saw the feet and the toes, partly of the potter's clay and partly of iron. It will be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it the toughness of iron, inasmuch as you saw the iron mixed with the common clay. As the toes of the feet were partly of iron and partly of pottery, so the kingdom will be so strong and part of it will be brittle. And in that you saw the iron mixed with common clay, they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it itself will endure forever." Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain with hands and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future so the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and did homage to Daniel and gave orders to present him an offering and fragrant incense. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal the mystery. The king then promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel made a crest to the king, 
And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the administration of the province of Babylon while Daniel was at the king's court. You may be seated. Oh, Father, please bless your word and open our eyes to see wonderful things from your law. In Christ's name. So here's the deal, man. Daniel has this dream about a huge statue. And then there's this heavenly stone. And then we go to the end talking about these humble servants. So what we want to do real quickly is just unpack the dream and see what it has for us, okay? So the dream itself, we kind of covered some of it earlier. But, but God has given Daniel the dream and its interpretation. He's so sovereign, God is, that he knows everything. And he shows that he can do everything anything. He knows the future. He has a plan for the future and will accomplish that plan. So these verses, the first few verses that are there, as you see those verses, 31 through 35, they're kind of dealing with the content of that dream. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on that. It's a statue. It's large. It's bright. It's frightening. And it's awesome. This thing is a little overwhelming how big and bright and awesome it really is. It kind of puts a little fear in some people's hearts. But then something happens, and this is the point of the whole thing. This heavenly stone comes and destroys the entire statue to such a degree that nothing could be found of it, period. Not even a trace. But yet, that stone that came becomes a great mountain and permanently fills the entire earth. So now let's just kind of jump in and look at the interpretation. And and I'm going to do this using three objects and three lessons from it. The first is, is Daniel talks about this huge statue. And I believe it teaches us that the kingdoms of man will be removed. That The kingdoms of man will be removed. This statue, this, this entire statue with these different elements in it, is really, in my opinion, the pictures of human government and human achievement. It's like saying, look what we've done in space travel. Look what we've done in medicine and communication and transportation and genetics. Just just look at us in our glory and in our awe. At the same time, though, you have to understand contextually, this was demonstrating the transfer of power from the Jewish people to the Gentiles. You see, this statue in itself doesn't bring hope. Because first, the identity of human kingdoms discourages hope. The identity of human kingdoms discourages hope. So let's begin to talk about this. Let's unpack that. Verse 36, he says, hey, let's tell you the interpretation. Verse 37, he says, oh, king, you're the king of kings to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. And then he says there, wherever the sons of men dwell, the beasts of the field, the birds of the sky have given them into your hands. And then he says very specifically to Nebuchadnezzar, there's no doubting this is what the text means. It says, you are the head of gold. Let's talk about that head of gold. Let's talk about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. It was from 626 to 539 BC. 626 to 539. He says, you, God says, you and you empire are that head of gold. The reason it's it's made with gold is because we know from studying history and we have all kinds of historians from the time, they tell us that the Babylonian Empire was covered with gold. It was all over their buildings, it was on their signs, and Nebuchadnezzar's own throne was made of solid gold. So we see this, that the identity of this kingdom, in this sense, that the head represents the Babylonian kingdom, but then secondly, the chest and arms of silver. Verse 39, he says, and after you there will rise another kingdom inferior to you. That happens in Daniel chapter 5, we haven't gotten there, but here in verse 32 of the text, it says, the head of the statue is made of fine gold, and its breast and its arms of silver. 
What we know that happened is, is in Daniel chapter 5, is the Medes and the Persians got together. That's why there's a chest and there's two arms. The Medes and the Persians formed one part and they took over the Babylonian Empire. They lasted from 539 to 331. They joined together to defeat the Babylonians that was well as a well-defended kingdom. In Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar had built a moat around his kingdom that was over 56 miles long. This, this was really, really high, the walls were, uh, where the ancient historian Herodias said that these walls were 300 feet high and they were 87 feet thick for 56 miles around Babylon. They were thick enough on the top that chariots could race on top of them. But yet the Medes and the Persians combined, they divided the, diverted the Euphrates, Euphrates River, which caused the water level to drop, and they did this at night, and then they went across the moat through the gates that were left unguarded. And then later on, King Darius, who was of the Medes and the Persians, King Darius required all the nations to pay him tribute in silver. So then taxes were collected in silver. They transacted daily with their monetary transactions in silver. So this now is why it's the, the belly and uh, the, the chest and the arms are laden and described with silver. But then let's talk about the belly and the thighs. Verse 39 says, it says, after this short rise, another kingdom, that's the Medes and the Persians, then another third kingdom of bronze. Well, it's interesting that after the Medes and the Persians ruled, the next people that came on the world scene are the Greeks, the Grecian Empire. And this is where Alexander the Great jumped on the scene. He lived to be 33 years of age, not long. The irony here is that he actually died in Babylon. It's interesting. But Alexander's armies and the Greeks really pioneered bronze with the use of rep weaponry. Their, their helmets were bronze, their shields were bronze. And their swords were bronze. And so this tells us of the belly and the thighs. Well, really, the, the belly. And then we get to the legs and the feet. Verse 40 begins this way. Then there will be a fourth kingdom, as strong as what, church? Iron. And as much as iron crushes iron and shatters all things, so like iron breaks in pieces, it will crush and break all these. Then he talks about the feet and the toes. Partly of potter's clay and partly of iron. It'll be a divided kingdom, but it will have in it toughness of iron as much as you saw it, iron mixed with common clay. And then he goes on to say that this, the toes are partly of iron, partly of pottery. So some will be strong and part of it will be brittle. And then you saw the iron mixed with the common clay that will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they would not adhere to one another, even as iron does not combine with pottery. And so who shows up on the scene next in world history? We know this from just looking at the obvious truth that's out there, is this is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire starts in 63 BC and goes to 1476 in the west and 1453 in the east. And it's divided into the east and the west because there's two legs. You might not know this, but when the Roman Empire came in, it was held to Caesar. So then in the east... The Germans had leaders called Kaisers, and in the West, the Russians had people called Caesars or Czars. It's all still Caesar, just in a different language, because it's still part of the Roman Empire. Well, these ten toes, 
They're part Rome and they're part other. They're the ten-nation federation that in the, the last days are going to come together to try to overrule people. Rome was, was strong, but it was vulnerable. It was unstable. It was numerous nations and divisions made up this empire. But you see, you have to understand, because of its makeup, it, Rome was conquered by forces not on the outside. Rome was conquered because of what it was made up on the inside. And it began to morally decay. The, the corruption of the material that wasn't meant to endure a longevity is what cost the Roman Empire. They weren't taken over because they were less strong than anybody else. They were taken over because of the makeup of their inside. Daniel chapter 7 and Revelation 13 talk about these 10 kingdoms and coming together. And if you look for me to try to explain to you who those are, this text doesn't tell me, so I'm not going to spend the time in this text to tell you what I think they are. The ambiguity here, in my opinion, is intentional. If we spend too much of our time trying to figure out things God didn't intend us to know, we'll get into trouble. But the lesson here is that the identity of human kingdoms discourages hope. There isn't one of those kingdoms that lasted. There isn't one of those kingdoms that didn't have a ruler who wasn't evil on the inside and didn't do atrocious things to the people to whom he ruled over. That's very discouraging when we look through history and we understand that the kingdoms of men are filled with evil people and they're not doing us any good. So then, by identifying these kingdoms, we also understand this, the inferiority of human kingdoms discourages hope. Not only do we understand who they are, but then we understand that they're not really going to last. Because why? They have a delicate foundation. They have a delicate foundation. This statue of gold, silver, and bronze and iron is standing on and is supported by clay. Who would ever do that? Who would ever put such a monstrosity of a statue and make it supported by clay? of a very delicate foundation. And this is what every single human government is standing on. Nothing but clay. Governments are crumbling all around us. You see it and I see it. As we look on the news, we see it all the time. Governments are just crumbling. They're, they're unstable. They're built on weak foundations of humanistic ideas, which are unpredictable, shifting, and they're weak. And again, Rome was not destroyed from the outside. They were destroyed from what they were made up on the inside. And there's a word for us in America to understand that as well. But not only do they have this delicate foundation, they have a deteriorating form. I don't know if you notice or not, but I want you to see here the writer's intention. He does this very intentionally. I want you to see that the value in the materials go down as we go through the statue. It goes from gold to iron. <laughs> you know that the value of gold is more than that of iron. But at the same time, they increase in strength. Gold is not as strong as iron is. That's very intentional. You see, society may grow stronger externally, but internally she grows weaker and weaker. We build stronger houses and we build stronger buildings, but yet we have weaker families. We have better roads, but we have a less sense of purpose and direction in our life. The descending scale of value speaks to the generation of the human race throughout the ages. The forms of government are also deteriorating because they, this is not how God's designed anything to last. Babylon was a monarchy that had no mercy. 
The Medes and the Persians was an oligarchy in which the government was ruled by a few men. That's not how God decided to do this. The Greeks were aristocratic. They were ruled by the nobility. Rome was imperialistic of military people that just took over and were ruthless. But I'm telling you today, God's kingdom is none of those, nor is it a democracy. God's kingdom is a theocracy where he rules and he reigns, and that's the way he wanted it. But the people wanted to be like all the other kingdoms, and they wanted to have a king for themselves. And that's what started this whole thing. That's not what God's plan is, so God's going to fix his plan in the future. Anything not ruled by the king of kings and the Lord Jesus will deteriorate, friends. Again, notice the progressive decrease in the value and the splendor, but the increase in the toughness and the endurance. If you were just thinking about that and the, that what that really means just from this text, you could defeat evolution just from the scripture. Because evolution itself teaches us that things are progressively getting better. That we start out with this and we just go through enough series and the survival of the fittest and the strong survives. But here the Bible is quickly telling us if you look around and you just observe, nothing seems to be getting better, friends. We're getting worse and worse as we move along, and that's the point. Anything that's not led by the king is, is on a shifting foundation. But then they also have a disintegrating, disintegrating family. He says there in the, the text down there, he talks about in verse 43 that, that they will combine with one another in the seed of men, but they will not adhere to one another. I'm not talking about personal families. I'm talking about the family of nations that are born this way, and they make this kind of a family. They make this kind of covenant to get together. The ten toes and the makeup of the clay represents the iron will of the authority that's over people, but yet the clay-like voice of the people. And as we near the end, the struggle will get greater and greater, pulling nations apart. People will rise up against governments, and the authority will always try to crush the voice of the people. Do we not see that happening right before our very eyes? Everywhere there's an outbreak where people try to rise up against the government, what does the government do? They enforce their iron will upon the people. The people's voice is clay-like, but yet the government is just strong, and there has to be this coming together, and it's just crashing against each other, and it's disintegrating itself. But then they have a developing force. Of a developing force, each metal increases in strength. It goes from gold to, to iron. As we degenerate in morality, we increase in force to make up for it. We see this happening even in our own country today. As we move more and more away from morality, the government keeps coming in and trying to take control of every single aspect of your life. Because when we lose this idea of morality, when we go from gold and we begin to lose this, this thing, well, the thing that begins to take place is that the iron will of the government takes over and we're left with a very unstable kingdom. There's nothing hopeful here. Nothing, nothing. It's just going to get worse. It's just going to get worse. The identity of the kingdoms of men, the inferiority of the kingdoms of men, there's, there's nothing that's going to last. There's just, this is not going to get any better. There's just nothing that, that we can look forward to. But see, that would be where we would be amiss because that's exactly what the writer's trying to tell you. If you're a student of prophecy, you may miss this if you're not careful. This passage is not about the statue. This passage has set you up for the stone. 
Don't miss the forest for the trees here. There's nothing encouraging and hopeful about the statue. But everything is encouraging about the stone. You see, you see, the heavenly stone tells us that the kingdom of God will remain. The kingdom of God will remain. The kingdoms of man are passing away, but the kingdom of God in Christ is the only one in which we can put our hope. Prophecy is really a bunch of promises to give us hope. Hope, remember, is heaven's own promises explained. The prophecies and the promises explained. The point of prophecy, listen, please hear me. If you're online watching us this morning, if you're driving by on 71, can I just share with you this morning, the point of prophecy is not to tell you the times and the dates and the places and all that. The point of prophecy is to tell you that Jesus is coming and you better get ready. Don't waste your time trying to figure out things that the text don't tell us. What does it tell us? There's a stone coming. See, the point is not the statue and the nations. That's not the point here. That's why he leaves a lot of ambiguity. The point is, is what happens to the statue. And that's the hope. A stone is coming, and this stone is none other than the Lord Jesus. Look there in verse 44. He says, in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will what? Never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people, and it will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but itself will endure how long, church? Forever. Now look at verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, incredibly important, and it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, and the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So this is the dream, and it's, trust, its interpretation is trustworthy. So the point of prophecy, again, is not the statue, it's the stone. So one question automatically comes to mind is, okay, if this is about Christ and his coming kingdom, is this talking about when Christ comes at the end of the age to establish his universal kingdom, or is this really referring to his first coming and the inauguration of his kingdom? Yes. Yes. It's about both. If I were to take you out to the mountains where I'm raised, and I were to take you up in the mountains, and I would say, hey, listen, which one's the tallest mountain? You would say, well, this one right here in front of me. But then I would say, well, listen, can I just take you from a different angle? Because this mountain's really not the, the biggest one. The one behind it's really the biggest one. But you can't see that from where you're looking at. You just see the mountain in front of you. But there's a valley in between these mountains, and that one's an even bigger mountain. And that's the way prophecy often works. We can only see what's in front of our face. We can't see the gap that's in between before there's another mountain. And that's what we have here. Christ was coming to inaugurate his kingdom at the first when he came. When he was born of a virgin and lived on earth with us, but then he went back up into heaven and he's coming again and he's going to bring his kingdom here on the earth. But the identity of the heavenly king is what delivers hope, church. The identity of the heavenly king is what delivers hope. So again, who is this rock? I know it's Jesus because I have to study the rest of scripture. So let me just tell you that Jesus is this because he's the smitten stone. He's the smitten stone. Exodus 17 says it this way. Exodus 17, 5 through 6, then the Lord said to Moses, pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. <clears throat> Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb. And you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it so the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. 
So we have this rock that's being smitten, this, this rock that's being struck. Well, who is this rock or what is this rock? Well, Paul tells us the identity of this rock in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4. And they all ate the same spiritual food. He's talking about their journey back in the wilderness, the same desert experience. And they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which followed them, and the rock was who? So this is the rock. This is the smitten rock. This is, this is Christ. This is the rock. The smitten stone of E. Exodus is a picture of the smitten Christ on the cross. And when he was smitten, his blood gushed forth, and he became the only one that could establish the kingdom of God on the earth. But he's also the stumbling stone. He's also the stumbling stone, referencing the coming Messiah, Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus shows up. He says this in chapter 8, verse 14. Then he, Messiah, shall become a sanctuary, both to the houses of Israel, a stone to strike and a rock to stumble over, and a snare and a trap for the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Paul again says this about Christ in Romans 9.33. He says, just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. And we know this, that the rock of Jesus is very offensive to a lot of people. People stumble over Jesus all the time. But we also know he's the special stone. In a building, one stone is special. It's the stone upon which the whole structure rests, and it's called the cornerstone. Again, Isaiah 28, 16, he says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I'm lying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed, and he who believes in it will not be disturbed. If we're believing in a stone, we won't be disturbed. Sounds like we're worshiping stones. <laughs> it's got to be metaphoric. It's got to mean something. So First Peter tells us what this means. First Peter 2, verses 6 through 8, For this contained in Scripture... Behold, I lay a Zion and a choice stone, a precious cornerstone. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Okay, Peter, you've told us we know that. This precious value then is for you to believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. Who are we talking about? Acts 4.12 tells us, 4.11 he, meaning Jesus, is the stone which was rejected, the builders, but which became the chief cornerstone. What I find is interesting is that stone is the least valuable substance in this whole thing. The gold, the bronze, the silver, the iron, and then here comes this stone. <laughs> Granite is much less valuable than gold and silver, bronze, and iron. Yet this stone comes with the power of God and shatters to dust all the more expensive metals. Jesus wouldn't come into this earth with the shine of the world. He was, he was born poor. He never owned a home. He never raised an army, but yet he came with death-defying power, and his kingdom would start so small, but yet grow into a very gigantic mountain. See, Jesus is not only the special stone, but he's also the smiting stone. He was smitten, oh yeah, He's going to do some smiting along the way. Verse 35 tells us, then the iron, the clay, the bronze, and the silver were crushed all at the same time and became chaff from the summer, like the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away, and not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the earth. 
Jesus is coming and will smite, destroy, and take over. And there's our hope. This one is coming and he's going to destroy every other kingdom. He is the righteous, ruling, true, holy God in the flesh who will never lead his people astray and his kingdom will never come to an end. The identity of the heavenly king delivers us hope. There is one who is coming. There is an answer. But then also the invincibility of the heavenly king delivers hope. The inferiority of the kingdoms of men, no hope, but the invincibility of the heavenly king brings our hope. This king is coming, but will he be defeated? I mean, will he be replaced? No. Why? Because first of all, it's supernatural. This is a supernatural thing we've got going on. In verse 34, I don't know if you saw it, but you continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands. Did you see that? And then down in verse 45, it says, you saw a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands. Humans can build most things. They build buildings, they build skyscrapers, but can I tell you one thing a human cannot make? Because a human can't make a stone. Stones of the temple had to be made without human hands. In other words, what we're seeing here is that no part of God's salvation, no part of God's kingdom would have anything to do with human agency. No human hands would ever be involved with this. God would do it all. Jesus wasn't made with human hands. Jesus was born of a virgin. There was no human hands involved in how Jesus came to this earth. Jesus was not made by man. Jesus came from God. This is supernatural we're talking about. But then also it's going to be sudden. It's sudden. All the other kingdoms are built on each other. They were gradual in the making, but Christ's kingdom will come decisively and with a decisive blow. For the first time, when Christ comes back, he's going to come, and there's going to be a rapture, I believe, of the church, and then there's going to be a tribulation. And then after that, the second advent of Christ is going to be after the tribulation, and his believers are going to come with him. And the Bible tells you and I to constantly keep our eyes on the eastern sky, does it not? Because he's going to come like what? Like a thief? In the night. And that's the point of this prophecy. We need to get ready, amen, because it's going to be sudden. But then it's also going to be severe. Jesus is the lamb of God, and lambs are super tender and gentle, but he's also the lion. He's the lion of Judah. He's the righteous judge. And one day the world that's rejected him, one day the world that's made a laughingstock of Jesus among the nations, one day the world that uses Jesus' name as a swear word, Pause, rabbit. I'm going to chase a rabbit for just a minute because the church, I need you to know this because this applies to you too. How do you treat the name of Jesus? Because as I live my life around a lot of church people, I hear this a lot. Jesus Christ. Really? God. Really? Just throw his name around like it's flipping. Have you ever tried that with anybody else's name? Justin Lopez. You wouldn't do that to Justin because you respect him. Well, why don't we do this? Why don't we say, well, Muhammad, Buddha, Joseph freaking Smith. Why, why, why do we only pick on Jesus' name? I'm just here today to tell you that that one, that one that the whole entire world uses his name as a swear word, he's coming back and he's bringing judgment with him.
he will no longer be swore at. He will be submitted to. He's coming back on a white horse, and he's going to deal a death blow to the nations. Malachi 4.1 says it this way, but for behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and the evildoer will be shaft, and the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. I'm telling you, when Jesus comes back, he's not coming around to play. He came the first time to save. He's coming the next time to take over. Then also, it's going to be successful. There will be no revolutions. There's going to be no decay. There will be no successor. It'll be a kingdom without end, no uprising, no defeat. It is going to endure forever. And verse 45 tells me that this word is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. And somebody's going to ask me, I know they always do, they ask me, Pastor, when do you think this is going to happen? I am not your man. Jesus himself said he didn't know. So if he doesn't know and I said I have an idea, y'all need to fire me. Here's what I do know. It's going to happen when two things happen. Matthew 24, 14. The gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. Let me step on some toes. If you want Jesus to come back, you probably need to start witnessing to your neighbors and go on missions with this church. We, we pray all the time, even so come Lord Jesus, he's given us a job to do. And he says he isn't going to come. This isn't going to happen until all the ethne, that's the word there, the ethne, the, the, the tongues, all the people that have a, a language in their tongue, until they've heard of the gospel of Jesus, this isn't going to happen. So therefore, it's on me, man, to get about reaching the nations for Jesus Christ. I, listen, if you, mm, I'm going to say it, and I'm going to get the heat from it. It's okay. But a Christian without a passport is an oxymoron. Jesus has told us to go to the nations. And it's our job to go to the nations. But then what else is going to happen? First Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, it says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with what? And the voice of the archangel and the what? Trumpet of God, right? Y'all know that. So listen, when the nations, when the ethne have been reached with the gospel, the next thing I know, I don't know when it's going to happen, but I know what's going to happen. People are going to hear the gospel, and then when all of them have possibly heard the gospel, guess what's going to happen? There's going to be a voice, and then there's going to be a trumpet, and guess what? <laughs> Y'all can have this church. Matter of fact, Sarah, you can have my house, because I am out of here. That's all we know. And trying to figure out anything else is just very unprofitable. The time is not the point of our text, so we're not going to deal with it here. So listen, you have a choice this morning. You can receive Jesus and have a life that lasts forever, or you can simply will be crushed by him. 25,000 or 2,500 years ago, a pagan's dream tells you the end of history. So he's telling us today, receive Jesus as the rock of your salvation or be crushed by this rock. But what you cannot do is be idle and pretend that it will not apply to you. You cannot resist Jesus. Charles Spurgeon compared to resisting Jesus to a gnat trying to resist the coming of a locomotive. 
He said, he who would place himself in front of a fast-moving railway car will be crushed and will be no more foolish than you who are opposing Jesus. Who are you to attempt to stand against Christ? You will be crushed. But let me tell you, when the railway car runs over you, the wheel of the railway car will not be raised even an inch by your size. For what are you? A tiny gnat, a creeping worm, which will, the, the wheel will crush to less than nothing and leave you not even a name as having, having been an opponent of the gospel. Let everyone in the world know as surely that the gospel will win its way. Whatever men may do, Poor creatures, their efforts to oppose the gospel are not even worthy of our notice, and we need fear that they cannot stop the gospel of Christ. That's the message of this dream. But I want to tell you that is not why Jesus came the first time. While we still have a chance, he came to save you. Jesus said that the rock the builders rejected became the chief cornerstone for those who put their hope in his salvation. And the choice is yours, a life of meaning and purpose built upon Jesus or a temporary kingdom of your own that will be crushed to powder. Very quickly, the kingdom of God will remain. But lastly, let's look at this very quickly. Humble servants, those in the kingdom of God will be rewarded. See, Daniel and his friends were were lights in a dark place. And Nebuchadnezzar, he couldn't deny the good works that he saw in them. So we're reminded of a couple of things. The Lord will use your humility to bring praise. The Lord will use your humility to bring praise. Earlier, if you remember, last time we preached, Daniel had said, listen, king, this dream is not for me. This interpretation is not for me. It came from the God who is in heaven. But verse 46, then king fell on his face, paid homage, gave orders to present him an offering and prayed for an innocence. The king answered and said, surely yours is the God of God, the Lord of lords, the revealer of mysteries, since you have been able to reveal this mystery. The king acts in an unusual and unprecedented manner. He falls on his face and pays homage to Daniel. Pay attention because that's going to come back. Because later he now wants the people that he just paid homage to to bow down to him. He does this, and and Shemper Longman, a commentator, says this. It's not about what Daniel has done, but it's what God is doing through Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar, for the first time, gives space to the God of Daniel and even offers praise to the God of heaven. Why does he do this? Because one man remained poised, prayerful, and willing to speak the truth to the powerful. And Jesus said this is going to happen. Jesus said that when we live in humility and we just do what he's asked us to do, men would see our good works and would praise our Father in heaven. You're saying, where do you find that? Well, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And he gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. I just need you to know today that God would take your humility and he will bring himself praise through it. That is your reward, is offering God praise. But secondly, the Lord will use your humility to bring promotion, to bring promotion. Turn back in Daniel chapter 2 and look in verse 6. He says, but if you declare the dream and its interpretation, you will receive from me gifts and a reward and great honor. Therefore, declare to me the dream and its interpretation. Well, he's already said, hey, you're going to get some good stuff if you can do this. Well, then look in verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him great gifts and made him ruler over the province, right? And then Daniel says, hey, what about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
and they get promoted as well. The king keeps his promise. Daniel receives these honors and great gifts. He's promoted to being in charge of all the, all the wise men. But yet Daniel in humility doesn't forget his friends. And he asks that they get promoted as well. But listen, with promotion comes incredible risk. As they're going to find out in the next chapter, and Daniel will in chapter 6. You see, humility is what we need to be about, and then maybe God will take our humility and give us a promotion in his eyes. We see this in Luke chapter 14. Jesus says, but when you're invited, go and recline at the last place, so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. And Jesus talked about when you go in and sit in places, don't sit up front. Don't go in when you're invited over by a guest. Don't go sit in the seat of honor. Go sit at the last. And in your humility, God says he sees that. And you might get asked then to come up to the seat of honor. It's better to humble yourself so that you can be exalted rather than exalt yourself and you have to be humbled. That's what he's saying. See, the Lord may use your humility to promote you here on earth or to promote you in heaven. You never know. Remember hearing a story about two missionaries. They were returning home after many years of service. And they were on this boat, and this boat pulled into the dock, and there was this big brass band out. And their, their first thought was about themselves and they quickly realized that there was a visiting dignitary at the dock, and people were just going crazy, and their baggage was collected, and, and they just got their bags, and they booked themselves in this cheap motel. And after a while, the man began to cry, and he just turned to his wife, and he says, listen, sweetie, we've served God all these years. We have no money to our name. We have no house to live in. And then when we return home, there's not a single person here to eat us. Wife turns over and she says, but sweetie, we're not home yet. We're not home yet. Can I tell you something? Heaven's rewards are going to be amazing. But beloved, they're also for the here and now. And God wants to use your life now and your humility to praise him now. And he also wants to use your humility now so that he can elevate you into places where he can use you. But when you go home, when I go home to heaven, it'll be good and faithful servant. Enter into your reward and your joy. And then we get the ultimate promotion to glorification. Aren't you looking forward to that day? Matthew 25, 23, his master said, well done and good and faithful slave. You're faithful in a few things. Now watch, here's the promotion. And I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. The band would come. That would be awesome. There's a huge stone, right? I mean, a huge statue. The kingdoms of men will be removed. There's a stone. The kingdom of God will remain. There's these servants. Those in the kingdom will be rewarded. I don't know if you guys are Texas Rangers fans. I got a feeling y'all are probably wrong in that too, but you're probably Astros fans, and that's okay. But I was watching the Rangers cleanse a playoff berth last night. Did I say that? Did I say that's right? That's right. That's good, right? <laughs> I was watching him do that last night, and it reminded me of a story. One time there was this little league baseball game going on, and there's this boy in the dugout, and the manager came over, and he said, hey, hey, son, tell me, tell me what the score is. 
Well, he said, it's 18 to nothing. It's 18 to nothing, and we're way behind. Well, somebody said, well, son, aren't you a little discouraged that your team is 18 points behind? The little boy said, no, I'm not discouraged at all. Well, he said, why aren't you discouraged? He said, because, bro, we hadn't even got up to bat yet. <laughs> I'm telling you, things may look bad now. It may look like there's no hope, and everywhere you turn, it feels like you're losing. But I'm telling you, Jesus hadn't got up to bat yet. And when he does, it's going to be a game changer. You know, this past week or two weeks, I've had a kidney stone, and I went into the emergency room, and they took a bunch of pictures and put me in these machines, and y'all know how it goes. And really, the pictures could tell me exactly where this thing was and that it was coming. <laughs> and we took a lot of pictures and showed the journey of this thing. And so when I looked at those pictures, I had hope that that stone was going to come. I got to thinking about that. That's exactly what's going on in this text. It's a picture. It's a picture showing us the movement of the kingdom, that it's on its way. And this kingdom will come to pass. This kingdom will never pass away. Hope is heaven's own promises explained. The Bible is true. God is in control. Jesus is coming, and he will reward us. You know why? Because Jeremiah 29, 11, in the context of captivity, says this. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for calamity, to give you a future and a would you stand with me this morning? If you're within the sound of my voice this morning, the first thing I want to say to you as we close this message is if you don't have the hope of the gospel, I want to offer that to you right now. Just very quickly, I want you to listen. The Bible says that all of us have sinned and we've fallen short of what God desires and that's his glory. The Bible says that there's not a single one of us who haven't sinned and that don't sin. And that because of that, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. Separation from God and separation physically into a grave. But he says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ. God so demonstrated his love for us that he doesn't want to live without us, that he doesn't want to have to make us pay for our sin. He wants to give us the payment of Jesus. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners that Christ died, Christ died to pay our payment. The Bible says today, man, that if you want to confess with your mouth that you want Jesus to be the Lord of your life, you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you could be saved. Saved from what? Saved from your sin. Saved from the wrath of God. And listen, brothers and sisters in this room, I'm telling you today, that's the hope that all of us need. So if you need that hope and you want to make that transaction take place, if you want to give your sin to Jesus, and let Jesus give you his righteousness and a home in heaven and hope here, we'll be down here to receive you. But maybe you need to pray about something else. Maybe this message has stirred up something, and I don't know what the Holy Spirit does, but we'll be here to pray for you.